Welcome to CTU Speaks, episode 18, Corona Revelations. Homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight from my Chicago teachers. I'm your co-host, Andrea Parker, and I am joined with... Jim Staros. And we're here to talk about what has been revealed from the corona crisis. Now, don't get all scared or think I'm talking about biblical proportions. Nope, we're not going just, there yet. Not yet. But what has been revealed about our government, about our society, about how we treat our citizens, and how the coronavirus has revealed all these things. And we're going to dive into that. Yes, we are. And part of the dive in, we're going to have uh, Professor David Stovall from University of Illinois, Chicago. He's going to be talking about all kinds of things dealing with race and inequity here in the city and the situation that existed before the corona crisis and now what's being revealed because of that and exacerbating the situation that already existed. So, yes, Jim. So by you being a history and government teacher and you've been a history government teacher at King High School for 20 years, correct? Almost. Yeah. You don't have to age me that much. It's only been 18. Uh, Oh, okay, 18. 18. Um, Yeah. Don't make me too old. Well, it's okay. It's, you're you're a veteran. You're seasoned. Oh, so sweet. And so and so, what we're so by you know from that lens and you know looking at government and just looking at how history repeats itself and government intervention in certain crises like these. Right. Um. How? What is your take? What, how do you think the government is doing in reference to? Um, the stimulus package, making sure healthcare workers are safe, making sure our citizens are not the spread is slowing down. Like, how do you view this? Well, you know, the the other day I was reading in the newspaper. There was a story about how uh, farmers that normally were selling their food to restaurants were having to destroy mm. a bunch of their food because they don't have distribution networks set up to deliver it to places that are needed. And this is one of those things that could be solved by government intervention, but our current national government's not wanting to do that. It's crazy because, you know, they've got all this food and they want to have it be delivered to, you know, the end user who's going to be able to to eat it, but they can't. Because it's, you know, even if they donate the food, there's still costs in harvesting and transporting it and stuff like that. And these are the kinds of things that historically the government's been able to interact with and and overcome. If you go back to the 1930s, during the Depression, we had a similar kind of situation where farmers had been overproducing food for decades and the prices were were dropping dramatically to the point where farmers were going out of business. Um, the, the income of farmers had dropped over 50% in the previous decade. Um, and this re- resulted in a lot of poverty and bankruptcies and stuff all throughout rural America. I mean, it's not exactly the same thing that happened back then because the 30s were due to that overproduction, and now it's due to this um, stay-at-home order. But the solution to this can be similar. Um, back in the 30s, Congress and the Roosevelt administration put out a ton of legislation and directives right. that was trying to curtail the worst of these problems. Um, they weren't perfect solutions. But they provided relief to millions of people um, that were starving in the cities and provided relief to farmers. Um, This is where we we get the uh, the food stamp program from today. So instead of um, destroying all this food, they allowed people to sort of purchase extra food that was going to be thrown away anyway. So it allowed the farmers to get paid and allowed people to eat. Yeah, I mean, it's a better alternative than just, like, destroying it. Like, how do you destroy food? Oh, it just breaks my heart. 
No, I agree. And I mean, how do you destroy food when people are are going hungry? Um, All over the world. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and there are a bunch of other programs they did throughout the, the 30s and the Depression that, you know, really helped out. Um, and it sort of relates to another situation that we've got that I was reading about as well, the, the closing of Provident Hospital on the South Side. Oh, don't uh, get me started because I'm already fuming. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, they, they're closing the hospitals and we already saw in the newspaper how the coronavirus is affecting poor and minority communities at three to four times the rate of wealthier and whiter communities. And they decide they're going to close an emergency room on, on the South Side in a minority neighborhood. And it's predominantly African-American and their rationale for closing the school, I mean, the uh, hospital, is because somebody, a worker got, you know, infected with the COVID-19 virus. And I feel bad for that, but I just don't believe that Provident Hospital is the only hospital with where a worker got infected. That's, you know, and th- I'm no. sure this happened in many hospitals, but you close it down. And yes, we know that African-Americans are more vulnerable, um, not just to getting the COVID-19 virus, but dying from it. Right. And so this is not the time to do this. And plus many of the health care professionals there were deployed to other areas. Exactly. And it just made me think like, are they more, have they been de- deployed to more affluent areas? Wh- where are they going? Because, right. you know, we need it. African-Americans really need it. And other minorities really need it because they're the ones uh, dying at higher rates than whites. Right. And I mean, this is happening all over the country. The Washington Post was talking about thousands of workers, uh, hospital workers being laid off. And it's predominantly because all these elective surgeries, which is where hospitals make most of their money, have been put on hold. So hospitals aren't making understand. enough money. Yeah. They were just saying that, oh, we, if you're a healthcare worker, we need you, we need you, we need you. Like, so I don't understand how they're saying we need you, we need you, we need you. And now they're saying that, like, let me say all healthcare workers are on deck, but now they're, but now they're laying off healthcare workers. Which one is it? Well, this, this is the exact reason why we need a public service sector like that, where there's, mm-hmm. not in, there's no profit incentive. If my incentive as a hospital is to make tons of money, then I want to make sure I, get, I have the most profitable surgeries going on in that hospital. But if my goal is to service the public, then that's not relevant. What's relevant is, are we actually doing what the community needs? And if we had some kind of healthcare program where everything was covered, then it wouldn't matter what the doctors are doing because the salaries are covered by the government, that we don't have to worry about making all this money back because at some point, the larger community, the government is taking care of it. And there are certain things the government can do at scale that we can't do as a local entity, mm-hmm. right? Like what? Well, like I mean, a good example is, you know, one of the, the biggest examples is building roads. I mean, mm-hmm. I like to drive, but I can't afford to build a road. And those roads exist whether I drive on them or not. Mm-hmm. And our healthcare system should exist whether I get COVID-19 or not. Not if right. I have good insurance, then I can get covered. If a doctor is still not being laid off, then I can, you know, that, that doesn't make any sense. You know, there are no, certain public services that we need to provide for the people of this country just because they're people. And, and that's what it should be. That way, when we need healthcare workers, we don't have to go around running to figure out what it is. Yes, and did Barack Obama, when he was in office, talk about having a pandemic team set up in place to try to prevent things like this? Yes. And I mean, you know, he almost sounds prophetic now because he was talking in uh, <laughs> in 2014. And, you know, he says, uh, one of the quotes he had said, so it's like, 
so that if and when a new strain of flu like the Spanish flu crops up in five years from now or a decade from now, we made the investment so we're further along to be able to catch it. You know, and that was six years ago. He said that that's pretty damn close. Um, and so why why wasn't it put in place? It was put in place, but oh, okay, the, well. our current administration decided that since there's no pandemic, it's a waste of money. So mm. it was dismantled. Wow. And again, it, it's like anything else. Like if you don't do maintenance on certain things, you know, even when there's no problem, then there's going to be a major problem at some point. Right, you can't beat you can't beat preparation. That's why we get insurance, why we get car insurance, homeowners insurance, health insurance. Because yes, in our healthy state, in a good state, you you always prepare for an exactly unhealthy right. state or a bad state. That's the point. Right, and I mean that's the thing. You know, our system's supposed to be one of the most efficient in the world, but and market forces have generated a lot of wealth in this country. But that's the same thing that helps shut it down which is why hospitals can't get the masks and protective gear they need because it's too expensive because people realize, oh, I've got a warehouse full of these things and I can sell them for a huge amount of markup because people are desperate right now. Correct. Um, Still putting capitalism first. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, just this week in Chicago, the city of Chicago announced 2,000 spots for housing assistance. There were 86,000 people that applied for it. I mean, wow. that, that shows how bad the need is. That's just here in Chicago. Yes. I mean, that's yes. that's 40 times the, the number of uh, spots that, you know, of people that applied. That's crazy. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, another thing, you know, when we look at the bailout, the government spent two and a half trillion dollars to bail out the economy. And they bail out industries and gave some money to people. But when you work out the math of this, the government could have given everybody their full salary to stay home for 10 weeks, for two and a half months wow. for that two trillion, for that two and a half trillion dollars. Every, almost everybody, 95% of the population could have gotten their full salary. And that would have made the stay at home order much more palatable. And, you know, yes, companies aren't going to get bailed out like that, but they don't have to pay their workers. They're going to be taken care of like that. All right, so it's so, go ahead. They don't need to pay any bills. I mean, besides paying the workers, there's no they do need, need to pay, pay some bills, and there will be some there will be some losses. But the major costs, like you know, CPS is a good example. Almost ninety percent mm. of our operating budget is salary. Okay, you know that's that's one of the problems. And if you got ninety percent of your bills taken care of, um, that's that's a good thing. There won't be any. That's true. You, there won't be any evictions. There won't be any bankruptcies if people are getting their regular salary. Twelve hundred dollars. A one-time payment of twelve hundred dollars. What's that going to do if we're locked up for two or three months? Yeah, and we don't know when. We don't know when the end is in sight. Exactly, and and this is the kind of things that we need to be able to do. And you know, we've got these essential workers still working, and they're risking their lives every day for this. And the government needs to come up with some bold action to actually mitigate the worst effects of this, like they've done in the past. Jim, I think you need to probably be on Donald Trump's consultation team i mean i'm looking at your numbers and they are great so not only are you a government and history teacher you also like a mathematician you should <laughs> well, be one of our economists working in our government i don't know I've, I've seen some of the economists working in our government i don't know if you actually need any math skills to be part of that <laughs> unfortunately yeah. but yeah i mean this definitely makes sense i mean if if this is the case if it's the same way like with cps and 
you think about businesses and if businesses, if like 80, even if it was like 70% of the operating of the operating costs were salaries, they will still be able to function. Oh yeah. No, definitely. I mean, th- these are the kind of things that are doable. They've been done in other countries. Um, right. And there's no reason that a country as rich and powerful and great as the United States can't do this on a national level. That's what the government's there for, to take care of situations that us as individuals cannot take care of ourselves. Wow. There you have it. Those are some revelations that the corona has caused. Now we're going to get into our conversation with Dr. David Stovall. Today, we've got Professor David Stovall from University of Illinois at Chicago. He's a professor of African-American studies and criminology, law and justice. How are you doing today? Pretty good. How about yourself? Doing okay with all this corona stuff going around. Are you keeping yourself safe? Yeah, trying to. I mean, the shelter in place thing is happening. I mean, best we can, just trying to make sure we're looking out for folks who may not have the same uh, capacity. Yes. Thank you so much for being here as well. And um, I was wondering, like with the schools, with you working and being a professor, is everything has transitioned online for you all too? Yep. So actually the campus is shut down for non-essential um, folks. So the everybody is pretty much on call. But the only folks I think who are there are the uh, folks who do some of the maintenance stuff. And then, and then mm-hmm. they're still on call. And then the right. upper level administrators like the chancellor, provost, um, president. But again, a lot of that stuff can be done remotely. The thing that I don't know that I'm concerned about is they extended our spring break. It ended today. Everything is going online, but we have some students who are housing insecure. So I don't know yeah. if they have had to if they've made space for them or if they've just have been out of uh, the dorm space. But I remember they were talking about making space for them, but I didn't get any confirmation on it. Okay. Well, that kind of gets to one of the questions I wanted to ask, because a lot of your work focuses on race and inequity. And I was wondering about the coronavirus situation now. How is that highlighting some of these issues that have been present in our community for a long time? To your point, it just uplifts it, right? It, it actually lets us know that there is less for those who have historically been declared disposable or vulnerable, right? So, right. and I think, I always think that vulnerable, that vulnerable classification isn't really giving us a description of what's really happening. I mean, these are folks who have been declared disposable, right? And now right. we say that we don't have anything for them, but we're really proving how little we've always had for them. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, you know, when you talk about these, you know, we talk about the essential workers and I find it interesting that a lot of these people, maybe most of the people we're considering essential now are these people who were, as you said, disposable prior to this, mm-hmm. the, the, the low end workers, not mm-hmm. the ones that we normally think of. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, it's been, it's been big because like here uh, where I live, I live in Woodlawn. What I've been noticing is that the safe passage folks are still doing work because a couple of schools have breakfast and lunch um, handouts. Okay. So they're delivering, they're delivering breakfast and lunch. So the safe passage folks are actually on the safe passage trails, which the thing that's the concern is that this is long-term exposure outside, 
right? Right. Not maybe not having the necessary equipment. So this um, this is also a concern. And like you said, they've been deemed essential workers. Right. So what what about access to um, you had mentioned people who are home, uh, homeless or housing insecure before? How is that? Again, also part of the coronavirus situation, but something that has been there and been lifted up by our current crisis. Well, I think the thing that comes up when you have a conversation around social distancing and you think about how shelters are situated, right? They're they're very much close quarters. A lot of the shelters, if they're large shelters, they may not have places where you can bathe. So that access, that lack of access to uh, hygiene can be a, a real concern. So now in the social distancing space, many of those shelters have had to close because you can't have folks in, uh, you know, six feet of each other in terms of the right. uh, Department of Public Health uh, recommendations. So this is a huge issue. And this has always been these spaces. And when you think about so UIC is right around the corner from the Pacific Garden Mission. And when you think around what happened with the Pacific Garden Mission. So in the early 2000s, remember, the Pacific Garden Mission used to be on the corner of State and Harrison. Right. It was it was right next to what was then Jones. Right. Mm -hmm. So when Jones got approved to build his seven floor expansion, the Pacific Garden Mission got placed over into uh, an industrial zone, right? So it's now off of a off a canal and about that's about 15th. So when you think about that area, it's always been around the isolation of those who have been deemed disposable. So the isolation of the homeless and housing insecure, the isolation of folks with. Uh, minimal resources. So this is a this is a thing. I think it's only a reflection. So when they purchased that land and they moved uh Pacific Garden Mission, they built seven floors uh and made Jones uh College Prep a very sought after high end selective enrollment school in the middle of downtown. So that that becomes important. So when we talk about gentrification and displacement look no further than that process with Jones and especially with particularly populations that have been isolated and marginalized. So now at the mission currently, which is on 15th and canal and now they with social distancing, they can't house people in the way that they used to. So I don't know if they've been able to just allow fewer folks in or if they've been required by the Department of Public Health to stop all services completely and then just being able to give out meals. So this is another example of displacement, displacement of those who have been the most isolated, the most marginalized and in you know the rhetoric of the day, the most vulnerable. Wow. And that's real scary mm-hmm. because these are homeless people um, and uh, the Pacific Guard are really catered to men. And now you have these men out on the street, um, right. nowhere to go, and it's still cold, all things considered. And uh, I know I saw on the news that it was closed down. It wasn't that they was um, changing the format. It was closed. And it was ironic to me because it was saying that 
more people are going to get coronavirus because the homeless shelters are closed. I'm right. like, wow, it's kind of weird. Like, you know, they're going to, you're saying coronavirus is going to increase or the spread is going to increase when you close the shelters down, but yet, and still, you're still closing them. So I thought that was very ironic. Yeah, I mean, this thing right. around no, and this is kind of this notion around underpreparedness, right? So when you are not thinking about those who are the furthest on the margins and you prioritize folks who already have access, then you get the exact same problem that you just laid out in terms of we know that this is a public health concern, but to save the many, we will further isolate and endanger the few. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, these people that are the lower income and minority communities, these are the ones that are disproportionately on the front lines of this. These are the ones that are, you know, stocking the shelves. These are the ones working in warehouses. These are the ones that are out in the midst of all this. So not only are we disparaging these people on a general basis, but then when it becomes critical for the rest of society, we got to put them out front to take the brunt of the damage. Yep, exactly. And that's the, that's the problem. So this thing around... Uh, saving the many and isolating the mm-hmm. few. Exactly to your point, we don't really have this understanding that the few is, are, are actually the people with resources and the many are the folks who are without. But because they've been deemed disposable, especially when you talk about low-wage service sector employment, gig economies, these are the folks who have been viewed as instantaneously replaceable. Right. And so because they always feel as if there will be a labor source, they are more likely to isolate and rid these folks of the few resources that they even have. So this thing that's happening when you see folks working gig economies, you see folks, uh, like you said, stocking shelves in grocery stores, working at Amazon and whatever warehouses, you know, and folks who are contracting uh, in this space. You know, we really have to pay attention um, to what that means uh, long term and how we even situate ourselves in terms of really understanding low wage service sector work. Right. One of the uh, reoccurring themes on our podcast has been the concept of the common good. So how do you think that some of the common good uh, since changes to our social structure can help everyone? Right. So this thing around a common good, I think people are really divided in terms of what that means. Right. Because there's a real thing. I mean, if we even if we think about public education. Right. So when we think about public education and states rights. Right. Education is not a constitutionally guaranteed right. Right. So I think this I think this really becomes important because when we start to consider that now we can see how states move on this. Right. So if you look at states like New Mexico, you know, where they cap, they literally have a hard cap on teacher salaries. Right. Where when you start, no matter where you what type of degree you have certifications, you can only make X amount of dollars. And then folks in New Mexico were alerting me that this is actually happening in other states. So this thing around the common good and we really have to ask this question around for whom. Right. And if we depending on how priorities are set, what is in that common good? So when we think about education and if education is a constitutionally guaranteed right or a right that is viewed to be inevitable, then the policies would change, right? right? Then the the work would change. So in your question about the common good, I think about here in Chicago, I think particularly about the far south side and the deep west side. These are the spaces that have been the hardest hit by black population loss. Right. 
And when we talk about those particular areas, what is available for them? Because I think the common good now starts to shift towards thinking about the most isolated. Right. So not the folks who are going to be doing all right anyway, but those folks who have been historically devoid of resources, how are they prioritized in the common good? And I think that's where our work needs to be, because these are the people who are triaged. Right. Right. These are the people who have just been expelled, essentially, in terms of our understanding of a common good. So I think it would really take for us to prioritize those who have historically had the least, right? And I think that when we, if we think about that now, this is a moment to rethink that, right? This is a moment to think about what it means to prioritize that group of people, right? Now, I say that and folks gotta come to grips with everything from late stage capitalism to racism and white supremacy. But at the same time, we have to be I think we have to think about what that means long term when we talk about a common good and who who's willing to go out against the orthodoxy and say there are those of us who have historically been isolated and marginalized and how are they prioritized? I think that's huge when we talk about the welfare of people. Right. When we talk about a a common good. So when you talk about workers pay leave, you know, sick leave, all of those things should already been on deck. So, for example, I think about what I'm hearing about in Canada. Canada has promised to pay 75 percent of all small business owners, employee costs and salaries for three months. Yep. That is an example of thinking about the most marginalized. Right. right. So if you if you're not if you're not working, if you're in a more precarious state, Canadian government said, look, at least for three months, we are going to take up 75 percent of you know, what you were being paid or what have you. Now, that very well may not be enough, but that's a huge commitment in terms of already having infrastructure up that can right. do that. Right. I mean, like that that's that's a, a thinking toward a common good. Right. Because right. they say, all right, well, look, we already got this. We already got this thing in order. Right. And also a place that has ironically what free health care. Right. right. So there's this thing around being able to think about common goods in a very different way. Right. And you, we got these uh, examples of folks who just do this instantaneously where here where the focus is so much on the market that people are inconsequential, right? right? So there's this thing around really, um, like what what did Trump's tweet say a couple of days ago? The uh, cure can't be greater than a problem or something, something, yeah. something about that. It, the yep. cure can't outweigh the problem or something like that. Yeah, was, yeah that more people are gonna get hurt by the economy than hurt by coronavirus. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Well, you know, I, I was, when they came out with this $2 trillion package, I was doing a little, you know, back of the envelope math. And the um, that amount of money would pay for more than what Canada's giving their people in our country. Yep. Yep. $2 trillion would give us uh, uh, everybody that makes, well, everybody except the upper 5% of the, the uh, population. 
it would give everybody their full salary for two and a half months. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's what really gets me that you could pay everybody, everybody their current salary. And you know what, With the, for the people still working, you know, give them that extra salary. They're on the front line doing the work. Du- mm-hmm. they, they get double for that. that I'm cool with that. I'd rather, yeah, I'm exactly. way more cool with that than them bailing out, you know, United Airlines who decided to use all their money to buy back stock and pump up prices. I'm way cooler exactly. with that. Right, exactly. And and most folks are, right? But yeah. Most folks are like, yeah, get at the first responders. Get at the folks who are working in grocery stores. Get at the folks who are doing uh, food service. All of those folks. Get at, get at the teachers. Not a problem. Like, we, we like, there's I, that, I think... If that was polled, you know, I don't know if Gallup gets down like that, but if that was polled, <laughs> I don't think I don't, I don't think anyone would have a problem with that, right? In terms of exactly those those means. Yeah. You know, and one of the other things I saw in the news, they're talking about all the uh, the kids that were fed by CPS, which is, you know, good. But then I'm thinking, you know, what the hell are we doing still having 50,000 kids needing food? You know, how how is that mm-hmm. still a thing? Like you know, I know it in my head, but then when I see it, I'm like, what the hell are we doing? Right. It's yeah, crazy. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. Right. So when you think about hunger and this is always kind of a conundrum for me. Right. So we got a lot of organizations that talk about childhood hunger. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is a terrible thing. Right. But what I think what we have to really think about is hunger in general, yep. right? What does it What does it mean that folks are hungry? And now, when we start to think about this situation, what does it mean that they are in a space that's so precarious that food is now limited in terms of their access, right? So I think this is right. a different space, right? It, it allows us, if we dare, if we dare to ask a different question, to say, well, if we got all these young folks hungry, what's to say that their families aren't also hungry? Right. Right. And I think this kind of goes into this kind of late stage capitalism around victim blaming, right? So if an adult is hungry, then the blame is yeah. it's your fault because you didn't do what yeah, you should have done do so else. that you can yeah. yeah so that so that you can eat which is nonsensical right we have to be clear about what are the factors that impact hunger and it, and what it's connected to and i think that's a really important piece that we are not talking about in terms of what is hunger connected to mm. and the fact that we got 50,000 young folks that we can even count yeah that's true Actually, in this in this space to yeah. that going that are going through this uh, particular situation. Yeah. So last question. Um, it seems evident that as a society, we're definitely going like in a, we're going to be different after the crisis. I'm thinking mm-hmm. that a lot of people are going to take different measures and things like that just to protect themselves. Um, and there will be a change to the current structure of our overall system. What do you think that may look like? And what is that? And what? How do we be vigilant in that? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. And thank you for that question, because there's a I think there are a couple of spaces that we can really think about. And I just kind of to our earlier point that we were talking about. So when we see the failure of online learning Mm -hmm. to folks at the K-12 level, we'll we will actually be forced into a different space. Now, I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned that folks can say, well, we can make it better. And when the question we should be asking is, no, what do we do to enhance 
learning and actually encourage face-to-face communal relationship-based learning, right? Mm-hmm. And at the onset of another pandemic, can we now engage in spaces where folks can be in relationship with each other if forced to self-quarantine and isolate, which is, I think, a very different in terms of people saying, well, hey, look, we had this instance and now let's just do everything online, right? right? Which we know, especially when we think about the primary grades, right? Where exactly. human contact is critical, yeah. right? So this thing around really thinking about that, I think also it forces us to think about wage protection and also employment, right? So mm-hmm. this thing around if folks are employed, then what protections do they have? And there's been you know, countless organizations who are working on this, but I think this kind of ups the ante. And then a third thing that I think becomes, will become critical is how we understand housing. Because this thing around now, people looking at housing and something I've been seeing out, in the, out of the Bay Area where tenants have organized and started to do co-ops and buy buildings to control rent, right? And I, I just thought this was a, just an ingenious practice where they said, well, look, as tenants, we'll buy the building off you, the owner, right? And then create practices that will uh, allow for non-escalating rents or what have you. So I think in this larger, in our largest society, we're going to be forced to address these issues in ways that will be brought more to light, because I don't want to say that have never been around before, because there have been folks doing this work for years on end. But I think there's the opportunity to uplift this work and to think about it in a broader scale because so many folks have been affected by it. Right. And I think there's a that's a real opportunity um, to get folks to be able to uh, consider that given the current day. So what, what do you think specifically we can do to ensure that that's, that's where we end up and we don't end up with corporate raiders coming in and trying to control the narrative on their end? I think kind of the work that you all are doing um, in terms of your podcast, I think the work of supporting organizations who have been doing this type of work, Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, um, the uh, folks who are doing uh, broad-based educational work, uh, Raise Your Hand, Illinois. I mean, all of these spaces that are have been doing this work and kind of bringing, trying to bring light to it, I think lifting their voices up. And there's an opportunity, although fleeting, right, in terms of the political class being able to have folks enter that grouping of people mm-hmm. to now come from the rank and file of folks who have had these experiences to shift how we understand how cities can work, how broader governments can work. And then this thing around really uplifting the work of folks who are doing self-determining attempts at uh, growing their own food or Mm -hmm. urban farms or what have you. I think this type of work now It becomes important for us not to engage this work in desperation, but to engage the work because this is what we have always stated that we've needed. 
right? So it's really around being historical and going back to history to say that people have always demanded this. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we lift this up? Because we've been educated in a very different time by a global pandemic and mm-hmm. using that as the lever by which to educate us in opposed to dispersing us. So I think those those things uh, can be done in the immediate space in terms of that support, in terms of lifting these voices up, because as these voices get lifted up, what we see is more people are having these experiences than we care to let on to. Right. Right. So now once their voices are lifted, now we can start to begin to make sense of this. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show today and uh, bringing your thoughts yes. and your wisdom to uh, our current situation. Man, thank you all so much. And I truly, truly appreciate the work that you all have been doing. And I have been thankful to be able to support it. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Hope to have you on again. Yes, oh, definitely. Surely. Yeah, just let me know. Thanks so much, Dave. I really appreciate it. This was fantastic. Well, thanks for listening to episode 18, Corona Revelations with Andrea and myself. It was a great episode as always, Ms. Parker. Thank you, Jim. I couldn't have done it without you. Oh, that's so sweet. How can people get in contact with us if they really want to? Yes, if you have not already done so, please subscribe to our podcast. Do it now. Now, do not wait and I hesitate. Come on now. So please tell your friends, tell your coworkers, tell even those, even your enemies. Yep. Also, we can be reached by phone at 312-467-8888. You have any comments, questions, or concerns, please call us. We're always looking for new ideas and topics yes, we are. for our podcast. Also, we have a Facebook page, CTU Speak. So please like our page. Yeah, like it. If none of that works for you yep. and email is easiest, then is. hey, we got that for you too. Yep. Email us at ctuspeaks at ctulocal1.org there we go until next time we are ctuspeaks where we only speak what matters there we do